I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The first guest of the evening is truly a poet. He's an artist. He is a friend and an inspiration to anyone who I think who has ever played the guitar or tried to write poetry. Would you please welcome Gordon Lightfoot. I feel a little blue because I can't sew. There's still a lot of things that I should know. Anyone can guess I don't know how to press my Saturday clothes and everyone's going home. This is Carefree Highway Revisited, the show that celebrates Gordon Lightfoot's music song by song, a proud member of the That's Not Canon podcast network. I'm your host, Mike Messner, and with me today is a fellow Lightfoot fan from Aurelia, Ontario, the home of the man himself, Michael Hill. Michael, welcome to Carefree Highway Revisited. Oh, thanks, Mike. Glad to be here. How did you first get into Gordon's music? And I have to ask that because I didn't want to assume that being from Aurelia, you automatically just picked it up or you got it by osmosis. <laughs> well, this goes way, way back. In the early 60s on Canadian TV, there was a show called Country Hoedown. Definitely not what your typical seven-year-old would normally watch. But I remember it being on TV and my mother is saying, oh, that's Gordy Lightfoot from Aurelia. I remember the day he was born. We lived right next door. So that was my very first contact with this name person. And Gordon was a cast member on the show. He was in a square dance group called The Sing and Swing and Eight. And then about a year later, um, he had his first single, which was called Remember Me, I'm the One Who Loves You. And it went to number three in the Canadian charts. So it was being played on the Aurelia radio station all the time. And I remember hearing that a lot. Very country song. Um, Gordon sounded more like Conway Twitty than the voice that we would come to love later <laughs> on. And uh, so I knew who Gordon was, but again, I didn't hear much of him for the next few years. And then about 1966 or so, uh, I was beginning to get interested in music, and I heard his songs Spin Spin and Tom Thumbs Blues on the radio, and I remember really liking them. But what really hooked me, though, was a friend of my brother's came to the house one day, and he took out his guitar and played all the songs from Gord's first album, Lightfoot. And right from the start, I, I loved all those distinctive melodies of each song. And, and I wanted to be able to do that. I wanted to play the guitar and sing those exact songs. Well, that's a great way of getting started. So it wasn't simply the fact that he had been the next door neighbor or anything like that. You really did authentically get exposed to his music. You know, at that time, I remember hearing disparaging comments about him. It's sort of that schadenfreude thing about a famous person. And I think it's worse in Canada than it is in the United States. If you become a famous Canadian, there'll be always someone really trying to bring you down. And I think there was a bit of that around Aurelia at the time. So it wasn't like automatically everyone loved him. It certainly is the case nowadays in this town. Everybody loves Gordon. Well, that makes perfect sense, though. What do you like about his music generally? I'm really drawn to melodic uh, music, and you can really say that about Gordon. I, I love all his melodies. 
you know, every album would have a dozen or so songs that were kind of similar in style, but every song was very distinctive individually. You take, for example, um, Home from the Forest and Bitter Green, two songs with the same instrumentation and pace, but their structures are all very different and the tunes are so unique. And I think that's been true all through Gord's career. And very, very few artists could write distinctively different songs that way for so long the way Gordon has. And I, I loved it also, and this is true of his concerts as well, that he would alternate between a, a lively strum of his 12-string guitar and then switch to a more gentle finger-picking style with his six-string. I can't think of anyone else who has that kind of style. You know, Maybe John Denver, I don't know. And you can't overlook the lyrics, of course, too. He is a, a real poet and a storyteller. Yeah, all good things, and they overlap with a lot of what other people have said about his music. What's your experience been with seeing Lightfoot live? I think I've seen him maybe about 25 times. The first time being in 1970 at the Aurelia Opera House. We have a nice big opera house in town, and it actually has a, an auditorium, which is now called the Gordon Lightfoot Auditorium, in his honor. It's a 900-seat theater with fantastic acoustics, and at that first concert, it was the very first concert I ever went to, uh, four of my friends and I, we stood in line for a couple of hours so that we could sit in the front row. There was no assigned seating at the time. And sitting that close to the stage made a big impression on me. At that concert, Gordon previewed you know, the songs from his upcoming album, which was called Sit Down, Young Stranger at that point. And uh, as always, they were tightened together. There was never a, a missed note or a mistake. I, I think that's been true of nearly every Lightfoot concert I've ever seen. There's such professionalism. He's such a perfectionist with the music. It really always leaves a good impression on the audience, I think. I've been involved with the Mariposa Folk Festival in, in Aurelia, which is held in, in our hometown here. I've seen him here maybe at least 10 times. Wow. Okay. And I want to make sure that we get back to the Mariposa Festival, mm -hmm. because I know that's been a big part of your life. And Gordon's made several appearances there also. Have you ever met the man? And if so, what was that experience like? Yeah, I've, I've met him s several times. Well, being the artistic director of the Folk Festival, I actually hired him a couple of times. I hired him in 2007 and then again in 2010. And then he keeps showing up every year. He comes and he kind of drops in. Would you like me to sort of go into the, the story of him and his history with the, the festival? Why not? Yeah, go for yeah. it. Okay, so... Being the artistic director, I, I was able to spend time with him backstage and in his dressing room. And this is a bit of an aside, something that most people would not know about Gordon. And as a performer, he's very undemanding when it comes to his backstage writer. You know, we, we've heard of all these people that want, you know, only red M&Ms and their writers. And, and I, I've had a lot of lesser known performers who had things in their writers like pages where they would say, oh, I want a bottle of scotch if it's a Friday night and a, a bottle of vodka if it's a Saturday night. Crazy stuff like that. With Gord, just a pot of coffee. That's all he asked for. Anyhow, in 2017, I wrote a book about the festival, the festival's history, because it is the oldest and most famous festival, like I said, in Canada. So I interviewed Gordon for maybe an hour and a half. And he's a very articulate, very gracious to talk to. He had lots of good memories about the festival. Uh, the very first festival, which was held in 1961, Gordon was playing in a duel called the Two Tones with a guy named Terry Whalen. And they auditioned for that first festival, but they were turned down. And Gordon told me that he and Terry were actually pleased. It was a bit of a compliment in a way, because 
The only criticism of them was that they sounded too commercial, too much like the Everly Brothers. So uh, it was a backhanded compliment. Then in 1972, I was at the, the festival and uh, Gordon Lightfoot and Bob Dylan showed up. And that created a bit of a stir because they just sort of popped up out of nowhere. Joni Mitchell and Neil Young actually did the same thing that year, too. So it was quite a year in the festival's history. But getting back to me programming the festival, when I would tire people, I would always organize every year uh, what I called a Lightfoot workshop. So you'd have several performers on the stage and they would either individually do Gordon Lightfoot songs or they sometimes join in with each other. And Gord began to show up 12, a dozen years ago or so, and he would actually um, get up on stage, or at least he'd, he'd watch the workshops, and then maybe get up on main stage and do a couple of songs. And it was a real crowd pleaser, and people started looking forward to it. So he's been doing that now for several years. And then how cool is this? He was sort of preparing me that he was coming. I would actually get calls to my home from Gordon saying that I'll be up on the weekend, and would you mind if I do a couple of songs? So. I find that kind of cool. That is amazing. I mean, that is something that I think every Lightfoot fan would absolutely give their left arm for, to have somebody to show up and say, just happen to be in town, you know, mind if I bounce a few songs off you? Oh, my gosh. I don't know that I'd ever turn a request like that down, sure. you know, <laughs> and, and I don't think most people would. No. Great stuff. Thank you for sharing that, Michael. Let's talk a little bit about the song that we're discussing today, Saturday Clothes. And I can tell you that for me, it's some of the most creative music that he's done. It's got what a lot of people would consider kind of jazzy chords, those major seventh chords, which are beautiful and they sound great. And they're used in folk music a fair deal, but they're not necessarily the easiest to sing with because of the musical structure of them. And Gordon pulls it off, just like he pulls everything else off, so well, with even chords that really experienced singers would have trouble with. Why did you want to talk about it today? I've always loved this song as a guitar player. It's fun to play those C major 7th and F major 7th chords. And there's just something about, well, especially with Gordon, with his distinctive 12-string guitar. He's, he's got that, it's like a, I describe it as kind of a, a ching-ching sound to it. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a unique feature of so many Lightfoot compositions. And again, I, I can't think of a, a more distinctive rhythm guitar sound than Gordon on his 12-string and and Red Shea or Terry Terry Clements playing lead in the background. One thing, the LP recording, I listened to that the other day just in preparation for this, and it really John Sebastian's auto harp is more prominent than Gordon's guitar. That's neither here nor there, because I have heard it twice in concert, and it was his 12-string, and it just made a beautiful sound. And then also, Red Shea's lead guitar, well, he used to say he wasn't so much the lead guitarist as more of a compliment to Gordon's songs, and that's so true here. The song wouldn't be nearly as effective without that haunting lead that Red did. It adds that sort of melancholy feeling in the song. Yeah, I'm going to talk a little bit more about John Sebastian's auto harp in a few minutes. But yeah, that's an interesting addition to it. And John is and was a very talented musician and a good session player, too. We'll be right back to our conversation with Michael Hill about Saturday Clothes. But first, let's do a little business. Attention listeners, the oldest record store in Toronto wants to buy your record collection. 
COPS Records is run by and for collectors. They know just how much heart goes into compiling your favorite music. Whether the vinyl belongs to you, a loved one, or a friend, they'll bring their 40 years of experience and sensitivity to every transaction. If you're thinking of selling a collection, visit COPS Records, that's COPS with a K, records.ca, or call them at 647-347-0095. You can also visit COPS at one of their three locations in the Toronto area. Hello, I'm JT, a lifelong student of the paranormal and the unexplained. I've spent over 35 years researching and learning about a wide range of subjects, from UFOs and cryptids to ghosts and the supernatural, from hidden and lost treasures to mankind's mysterious past, and all other things mysterious and Fortean. Each week, I'll bring you some relevant and interesting articles in this genre, as well as a different topic, some you may be familiar with, but many you most likely will never have known existed. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. And let me be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained on the paranormal sun. Do you have any anecdotal stuff about the song or an experience that really brought it home to you? Or is it just listening to it and as a guitarist, you sort of take it to heart? I think it's more of that. Like I did hear it for the first time and I did see him playing the 12 string for the first time when I saw him in that first concert. But it really made me determined to get out there and get myself a 12-string guitar. And I've owned three others since then, and I, I just utterly love the sound when I hear anyone playing one. I have a feeling that that's probably true of many people who've heard Gordon. They they sort of uh, love that 12-string sound and maybe have gone out and bought their own. Yeah, and as speaking as one who has also owned a 12-string in the past, and especially since I've been doing this show, I would love to get my hands on a solid top Martin or Taylor 12-string if I ever got a chance and if I could afford it. Is there a particular setting in which you would ideally listen to this song or a certain activity that you'd be doing while you're listening to it? Or could you listen to this absolutely any time around the clock under any pretext? Yeah, uh, I, I know you asked that of all your guests, and, and that is my answer. Any Lightfoot song, anytime, anywhere. But I suppose what I really would narrow it down to is maybe walking my dog, which I do every morning. There's something relaxing about the song, the pace of it, and just the the lovely tune. I gotcha. For me, the day that we're having right now in Northern California, where it is April and it's cloudy, doesn't look like it's going to rain, but it's cloudy. And if you didn't know better, you wouldn't think it was spring. You'd think it was autumn or winter. And at the moment when we're sitting here, I'm the only one in my house. So I would think that for me, that would be the time. And I can't really explain it, but that would be the time that I would really want to listen to this, maybe because of the context in which the song takes place or the, the picture that he's painting for us. We'll talk about that in a second. Michael, I couldn't find any information on exactly how the song got written or what inspired the song in particular. So I'm afraid I came up empty on my search. Do you have an angle on how or why he wrote the song? No, I've never heard anything uh, definitive anyway. But in that interview that I did with Gordon for my book, he told me that his house in the early 70s and maybe in the late 60s was party central. And uh, I know that he and his first wife, Brita, they separated many times before they finally divorced about 1974. So I, 
believe that that song was probably written uh, maybe during or about one of those separations. I know Gordon had a, a beautiful big mansion in the richest part of Toronto, and I know that he uh, had a, a lot of sort of renowned parties there, and I think that's sort of reflected in this song. The words are kind of pensive and even a little regretful, but uh, we'll get into that some more, eh? Yeah, we're just about to, as a matter of fact. Kind of an enigmatic song, but also one that's definitely worth talking about. So let's just jump into the lyrics. I feel a little blue because I can't sew. There's still a lot of things that I should know. Now, if he's saying that he can't sew, that would imply that there was something that needed to be sewn, that needed to be repaired. But it also gives this idea that somebody else has got to do this, so I have to be dependent on somebody else. And you said that the house was party central. Well, at parties, what happens? Sometimes things get a little out of hand. Accidents happen. Things get torn. Am I thinking about this too much or is, am I on, on track with it? Yeah, that's, that's as good an interpretation as anybody's. I sort of feel that, it's, that he's literally sewing his clothes or anything like that. I think it's just more of a, a wishing that he could sew up a relationship that was coming undone. That was my interpretation. Yeah, good good metaphor there for a, a relationship that's coming apart. Anyone can guess, I don't know how to press my Saturday clothes. Where I come from, Saturday is usually a day to relax and not be formal. So your Saturday clothes are not the ones you'd wear to work and not the ones you'd wear to church the next day if you were headed there. So it's odd that you want to have an outfit pressed for something very, very informal. And that may be just poetic license on his part, but I just thought that was kind of fun. I think he is being just kind of poetic. Uh, and again, I don't think it's so much the literally pressing the clothes so much as maybe smoothing out the wrinkles in a in this situation in his personal life that was definitely not going so smoothly. Yeah, and we're going to come back to that in a second or two. And everyone's going home. So as you alluded to, the idea is that people have been over, they've been hanging out, they've been drinking, they've been smoking, they've been carrying on, having a great time. And now in late at night or in the wee small hours or whatever, okay, they've now left. And so he's back by himself wherever this is, either the house that you were talking about before or the house that he had during the Rolling Thunder review where that famous jam session took place with Joni and Bob and Roger McGuinn, I think, might have been there too. I feel a little sad to watch them leave, but I'll be cool because I don't believe the happy times are gone. Now, the music is a little bit melancholy here, but he knows in some part of his mind that there will be more happy times, more Saturdays or maybe Friday nights. So in that sense, this is not a total down in the dump song. I mean, he knows, at least intellectually, they'll be back next week. Yeah, I get the feeling that he probably didn't like being alone at the time and that after all the friends had left and he was alone in the big house, that's when he wasn't all that happy. But he is certain that they're going to be coming back and the happy times are, are not really gone. It's all temporary. I can still put on my Saturday clothes. So there is some normalcy in his life, despite the fact that he's alone. Every warm body knows I've got to tell you that was a swell time. Now I'll take the butts away and put the glasses on the tray. I'll see you all next Saturday. So maybe this was just 
something that happened every weekend for him while he was in the separation or when he and Brita were together. So he's cleaning up after some sort of party, whether it's metaphorical or not. So he's getting things, okay, well, now see you guys in six days or however long it would be. Yeah. I, it sounds like, if you want to take it literally, it sounds like he did the cleaning up himself. But I think once again, that probably the, the cleaning up meant that he wanted to clean up some problems in his personal life as well. And maybe I'm reading too much into that. I, I don't know. Well, you know, if I can do it, then you can certainly yeah. do it, you know, so no problem with that. But then the line that kind of ties into what we've been talking about here, I feel a little off because they're gone, they being his friends. And if my gal were here, I'd still be on. Now, that could be taken a couple of different ways. He may be talking about his lady love or his girlfriend or his wife or a maid. I, I think of the Neil Young song, A Man Needs a Maid where somebody would be there to clean the place up. But irrespective of that, there is a void in his life, and that's why he's inviting people over to fill that void that's been created by the absence of most likely his wife at the time. If he was separated from Britta, I don't know exactly when that was written, but that would make sense. You think I'm on? Oh, yeah. That's that's exactly what I think, too, that I think it's Britta and that he wouldn't be feeling off if she was still with him and at home with him. But in a week or two, there's lots of things to do in my Saturday clothes. And so he's looking forward to the next time his friends come over, which would be the next Saturday night or the next time he's at home, he's not on the road and it happens to be a Saturday and people are coming over. But he's looking forward to being around his friends whomever they are at that particular moment, the next time they do come over. And the song ends there. I think it's under three minutes long. So it's not an epic. This is not Canadian Railroad Trilogy by any stretch. We'll be right back to our conversation with Michael Hill about Saturday clothes. But first, let's do a little business. Hey, this is our new podcast. We're going to make this podcast. It's going to be Victorian. It's going to be new. It's going to be us reading and then breaking it down in the same episode. Be excited. Listen to these horror stories that are actually going to be similar to your life today. This is the transition episode where we go from YouTube, Facebook into the podcast. This is what we're planning on doing. We have content already. Go ahead and watch, listen on YouTube and Facebook. Um, but now it's pretty much just audio only so we're going to bring it to you in an audio format and uh, here it is we're going to nar narrate a book and then we're going to break it down into the things that you have learned about the victorian era and then the the crossover between the victorian era everyday life to the 21st century everyday life right <laughs> Hello, my name is Sundro. And my name's Zach. We are historians. Well, movie historians. We're not qualified for anything else. Join us on our podcast, Oldie But A Goodie. Where, for all of 2022, we're reviewing movies from the year 2001. That's right. Every episode, we look at all the movies that came out that week back in 2001. Then we pick one film and we do a full synopsis review. It's, it's Oldie But A Goodie. Sometimes, most of the time, we find bad movies. It's usually a fun time, but also usually one of us ends up pulling our hair out by the end of the episode. And we have a lot of hair between between us. What a selling point for the trailer. <laughs> 
Yeah, I thought it was pretty exciting. Oldie but a goodie. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, that's not kind of productions podcast. Well, the song did appear on Sit Down Young Stranger, which of course then was retitled to If You Could Read My Mind. It was his first album for reprise. It was recorded in 1969 in Hollywood, and then it was released in 1970. It was the fourth song on the record and was not released as a single, which I can completely understand because it's not poppy enough to do that. There were singles that were released from that album, of course, but I can understand why this would be an album cut. I don't hear dollar signs when I hear this. I hear a guy spilling his guts, but I don't hear something that's really commercial. No, not at all, especially compared to some of the songs that were available and were released as singles, if you could read my mind. And I think they released um, Me and Bobby McGee as a, as a single. Yes, they did. And yeah. the legend oh. is, I can't confirm this, but the legend is that Chris Christopherson sang the harmony on the outro to that one where they went, la da 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 oh. Don't know if that actually happened, but that was the story that I heard. They definitely knew each other at the time. Uh, oh, yeah. And Honestly, I like Gordon's version better than I like Janis Joplin's, and I like Gordon's version better than I like Christofferson's. Um, Me too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The album, of course, did go to number 12 in the US, 12 in Canada, 20 in Australia. If it did chart in the UK, I can't find it. So obviously, it was a huge step forward commercially and artistically for Gordon. This is where we come to the musical part of it that you like the most. And I think you said that Red Shea's fills really added a nice touch. For me, it was John Sebastian's auto harp. It would have been a very sparse song if it had just been Red and Gordon and Rick, because by that time, John Stockfish had moved on. But it was just, I don't know what it is, I can't explain it, but just to have the auto harp on the record really gave the thing a sort of shimmering quality that it wouldn't have had if it had just been guitar bass. Any thoughts on that or any other things you want to say about Red's role in that? I agree with you about John Sebastian and, and his auto harp. It just, it, it's very subtle in one way, but it's also really adds so much to the song. I know when he did it in concert, it was always with just with the trio, and Gordon's 12-string came out more than you hear on the, the actual record. And I, I remember thinking at the time, I was a real Loving Spoonful fan as well. I remember thinking that it was so amazing that they had rounded up John Sebastian to play on, on a Gordon Lightfoot record. Um, this was really, a again, another big step up for Gordon, moving from Canada to L.A. and mixing with some of the... Uh, the rock and roll royalty, really. Well, yeah. I mean, Sebastian had been in The Spoonful when he left. The band was essentially, it had been gutted. I think yeah. they did one more record and then they broke up. And I know he played at Woodstock. He played on the Deja Vu album by CSNY. And then he shows up here. And I think for a while he was just doing session work. I mean, he probably put out a couple of solo albums, but until you got the theme song to Welcome Back Cotter... I don't know how much commercial popularity Sebastian had, but to just to be working with John Sebastian, I think would have been just a kick for Gordon. Yeah. There was only Red and Rick and Gordon that were playing on this. And then John was either overdubbed or maybe they got him while they were doing a live track. But 
yeah, it's a stripped down album and the song, it needed something. And I think whoever was producing this, whether it was Lenny Waronker or Gordon, they just needed one other little bit. And somebody said, well, let me look in my book under J for Jangle. Ah, there's John Sebastian's name. We need John Sebastian. You said that you've heard this song played in concert, and there are only two locations that I absolutely know for sure where he played it, but I'm sure that there's more than that. I know that he played it at the Troubadour in L.A. Uh, in October of 1970, and then he played it the following summer at the Royal Albert Hall in London. Where have you heard it performed? Well, I heard it in Aurelia at the uh, 1970 concert, and then I believe I heard it the next year. I saw him at Massey Hall in Toronto because I remember his usual strum. He changed it a little bit from what it had been on the record. I remember that distinctly. So he must have played it at Massey Hall at least that once. Or, you know, I saw him so many times at Massey Hall that <laughs> it may have been some other year as well. I keep coming back to that 12 string guitar playing that uh, he did. Now, just getting back to the record a little bit, it mentions in the credits that Gordon played piano on it. And and I think that would have been maybe a first time for him to be playing a piano on one of his records. So that's kind of an interesting little tidbit, too. Yeah, he did have a lot of musical theory. And of course, he started out saying he wanted to be a band leader, essentially. So he went to the Westmont School of Music. And he did say that he had a lot of piano theory, which helped with the writing. But I don't remember him playing piano on an album before this. He didn't play it on this song. But... Yeah, I think you're right. This is the first time that he actually played piano on one of his own records. There are two covers of this song that I could find that have been released or made commercial. Karen Marklinger is one. And then John McLaughlin, who has been a guest on the show a couple of times, has also covered it. Are there any others that you know of that have been either up for sale or publicly released? No, those are the only two. Uh, that, that I know of. At the Mariposa Folk Festival, one of the performers, her name is Steph Dunn, she played a cover of it in one of the workshops, but playing piano, and it gave it a, a totally different feel. Uh, a female version played on the piano was far different from Gordon playing on his guitar. You know, that makes me think of how, again, referring back to CSNY, when you listen to Joni Mitchell's recording of her song, Woodstock, which is done on piano. And then you listen to what the band did when they did it, CSNY. You would wonder whether they were the same tune. I mean, melodically, they probably were, but they're just so very, very different. I love them both. But yeah, not only an instrument difference, but a gender difference. Uh, I've always in, thought that too. Yeah. yeah, amazing. So is there anybody that you kind of wish had covered this song or would cover this song? Yeah, I would have loved to have heard uh, Jerry Jeff Walker do it. I don't think he ever did any of Gordon's songs, but it, uh, you know, the song kind of fits in with Jerry Jeff's partying ways and and his kind of pensive and regretful manner about a, you hear coming through in a lot of his songs. One thing about Jerry Jeff was apparently the leather jacket that Gord wears on the cover of the Don Quixote album was a gift from Jerry Jeff. And I think he wears and, the uh, same jacket in Gord's gold too. Yeah. Uh, another person I would have liked to have heard do a, a cover would be Nancy Griffith. I think she would have done a nice version of this song. And again, interesting to hear a female version. And then there's Willie Nelson, 
Willie has covered so many songs by so many people. And, and yeah. hey, Willie, there's still time. <laughs> yeah, there is. I would have liked to heard Art Garfunkel do it. I think his voice has that sort of transcendent quality, but it's also sort of a non-committal transcendence. I don't know if I'm making any sense here, but I just think that he would sound good with this. And it's the kind of song that I think I would probably expect to hear on one of his albums. Would have liked to hear Joni Mitchell do it. I don't think that will happen at this point because I know her health is not great, but either one of those. Mm-hmm. Michael, are any other closing thoughts on this? And then I want to talk just a little bit more about the Mariposa Folk Festival, but anything to sort of wrap up our discussion of the song? Well, I think the song really holds up well. It was written probably in 1968, 69, but it doesn't seem dated in any way to me. You know, I think Gord could write it and release it today and it would still sound fine. You know, when you look back at so many songs written in that era, they seem to be, you know, very dated very much from the the hippy dippy uh, 60s that's probably my final thought on it uh, it's just a, a great song that still still sounds great so you had said that you had been the artistic director of the mariposa folk festival and i'm assuming that means you're no longer in that position do you have any insight as to what the next festival is going to be where and when and who can you give us a little bit of a sneak preview or are you kind of out of that orbit I'm quite a bit out of the loop, but it's held every year in Aurelia, Ontario, which is just north of Toronto. About 30,000 people a year come to the festival, and it's like uh, it's done in one of the city parks that's uh, surrounded on three sides by water. So it's the most beautiful setting you could ever imagine. This year, I can't really say who the uh, the headliners are going to be, but it's always a cast of maybe about 50 different artists and performers. It's usually well-known names from both Canada and the United States and even around the world. Um, You know, people like Peter Yarrow and Arlo Guthrie, they've all played it just fairly recently. And in the past, Pete Seeger and Doc Watson and Buffy St. Marie. I'm sorry I can't come up with the the current lineup. Is there (laughs) a uh, website that people can go to? Yes, I think it's mariposafolk.com. I think there's a Mariposa Festival in California, but it's a butterfly thing. The Mariposa comes from, we had a, a famous author who also lived in Aurelia, uh, sort of Canada's version of Mark Twain. And Stephen he wrote Leacock. A, yes, Stephen Leacock. Mm-hmm. I'm impressed that you know that. Um, <laughs> he wrote a book called Sunshine Sketches of a Little Town, and uh, it was really about Aurelia. You know, he's kind of making fun of small town foibles, and uh, he named the town Mariposa. So... In Aurelia, we have many, many things that are named Mariposa, this or that. And uh, that's how the festival got its name, too. Fantastic. Mariposa means butterfly. So, yes, it is a festival that they have down near Yosemite in California. But, yeah, very, very different tenor than they have there. Michael Hill, this has been great. You and I have been talking about this for months and months, and it's great to have somebody who really enjoyed the show come in and be part of it. So I wanted to thank you for taking the time today to talk about this song. Well, thank you, Mike. And thanks for doing these podcasts. Like for those of us who consider Lightfoot right up there with Dylan and the Beatles, this whole series that you bring is is just an incredible undertaking. and, And I want you to know that we appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. I certainly love doing it. And please keep telling people about it because that's how we grow. And thanks for listening, everybody. 
If you like this well enough to listen to the whole thing, tell somebody about it. Carefree Highway Revisited is on Apple, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your listening matter. Our website is www.lightfootpodcast.com. I'd like to make a special request for you to visit my Patreon page. I love this show so much, and I want to keep it going, and you're in a position to help. Please head over to www.patreon.com slash carefreehighwayrevisited. A dollar or two a month is all I ask. You can reach me, Mike Messner, at teachermike72 at gmail.com. Well, our next episode will feature my guest Adele Shalifu making her third uh, appearance on the show from Kapawa, Quebec. And she will be discussing Whispers of the North with me, and that's from the 1983 Salute album. That episode will be coming out in late April of 2023. Until then, for Michael Hill, this is Mike Messner reminding you, run for the roses, but don't forget to stop and smell them. We'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.